Do, 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 do. Here we go. My name's Todd. And this is Kathy. Welcome back to another episode of Zen Parenting Radio. This is podcast number 661. Why listen to Zen Parenting Radio? Because it'll help you to feel outstanding. And always remember our motto, which is that the best predictor of a child's well-being is a parent's self-understanding. On today's show, we are lucky enough to have a guest named Michael Ian Black. Michael is many things. He's an actor, he's a comedian, he's a screenwriter. He's an award-winning children's book author, which I didn't know until I read this other book that we're about to talk about, an essayist, a memoirist, and a podcaster. Michael started his career with the sketch comedy show, The State on MTV, and has created and started many other TV shows. Movie appearances include Wet Hot American Summer, The Baxter, and Sex Tuplets. That's what it came in his press release. But the ones that I most love in your work is Ed, This Is 40, and Wonderlust. And maybe on the other end of this interview, we can talk about some Hollywood stuff. But um, Michael is the author of several books, including the award-winning trio, I'm Bored, I'm Sad, and I'm Worried, and the, and the parody, A Child's First Book of Trump. Mm-hmm. And maybe we'll talk about that. He's also a man and the father of a boy on the cusp of manhood himself. In his poignant and insightful new book, A Better Man, a mostly serious letter to my son. Um, so welcome, Michael Ian Black. So glad to have you. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Um, so if I were going, I, I don't, this is where I want to start. So Michael, when I, um, I, I subscribe to this news thing, uh, that I get every Monday morning, every weekday morning called Axios. And these were the headlines. So we're recording this on May 16th and, uh, what happened on Saturday, which I think is very poignant to your book. And I'm sure that you'll bring in some of your own stories. There was a shooting on Saturday in Buffalo that killed 10 people at a supermarket um and the suspect threatened to target his high school last spring but he had no further contact with law enforcement after a mental health evaluation that put him in a hospital for a day and a half he live streamed the shooting on the gaming platform twitch the shooter wore tactical gear including a bulletproof bulletproof vest um and he allegedly left a racist screed um so I don't think it's a, I don't think it's an allegation at this point. I think he did leave a racist screed. Yes, mm-hmm. and um, as sobering of news as this is, this probably isn't going to get released till June. And my guess is, whoever is listening to this in June will have since forgotten about the Buffalo shooting and will be focusing on the most recent shooting. Um, Michael, you start your book uh, talking about. Um, your experience with the mass shooting when, do you still live in Connecticut or are you in Georgia? For some reason, your press kit said Georgia, but I thought it was Connecticut. I was living in Connecticut. I recently moved to Savannah, Georgia. Okay. I am now a Southern gentleman. <laughs> so, um, so you want to talk about how you started the book as it relates to the news of the day? It begins with my recounting the events uh, of the Sandy Hook shooting because the town that I was living in, Connecticut, was right next door to Newtown, where Sandy Hook is. So, obviously, and my kids were in elementary school at that time. So, obviously, that event literally hit close to home. Um, and that event opened my eyes uh, around the issue of gun violence and kind of radicalized me around the issue of guns. And so I, I recount that day as the opening in my book. Um, but then the thing that precipitated the actual writing of the book was the shooting in Parkland, Florida at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas high school when my kids were in high school. And uh, so in those intervening years between Sandy Hook and Parkland, I had been, you know, yelling into the void about guns and gun violence and um, obviously gaining no traction because it's an issue that nobody gains any traction on. But after Parkland, I went on Twitter as I normally do, as I did after Buffalo and, uh, you know, started ranting and raving. 
more to make myself feel better than anything else. I'm not expecting anybody's mind to change. But after Parkland, as opposed to just talking about guns, I talked about the fact that it was a boy or a young man who pulled the trigger. That's always boys and young men and sometimes older men who pull the triggers. It's always men. And so I just asked the question, why? Why, why is it always guys doing this? And uh, it was that question that set me off on the journey to writing a book about boys and men. Yeah, my my hope is that everybody reads this book, but if I can have anything I wanted, I would want dads to read this book. Because in my experience, I, I work with a lot of men, Michael. And uh, I judge that the moms are doing more work than they should be doing. And the dads need to look in the mirror or like I can see a dad like passes to his son saying, Hey, this is a good book, read it, but they won't do their own reading of it. Well, and you actually say in your book, Michael, like, you know, we, a lot of times Todd and I have these discussions all the time because he works with men, he runs a men's group and I work with women. So you can imagine all the conversations that go on in our home. We have three girls that we're raising. We're all teenagers now. And you say a lot of times these things men look past because they're like, this doesn't affect me. You know, this is not my issue. And what's interesting about this one is it is, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like this is men, but yeah, it's, it's not seen as I, I don't, I, and I don't even know if you have the language to explain this, but why don't men see this as a men's issue? <sighs> men in general, I think don't understand how male-centered the culture is. And so we tend not to think of issues involving men as male issues because they they they, they seem they seem like they per, they're, they're pertinent to specific men and specific issues um but they don't see the larger picture and the larger picture is that we live in a in a in a culture that's so well it's like it's it's i equate it to the joke about two fish swimming in water and they're swimming along and then another fish comes by and the fish says hey the water's really nice today and they sort of go yeah yeah and then they keep swimming and then the one fish turns to the other and says what's water <laughs> because they're so deeply immersed in it they don't know Mm-hmm. That's that's how I think of the culture and 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 men. We we we're so entwined in the culture. We don't understand that we are the culture. And people and women who who have been struggling against it for centuries are better able to perceive it because they they're they're banging their heads against it. Mm-hmm. In, in our kitchen, we have a little you know thing on the wall. And it says, this is water. And it's be, I don't know if you've seen the video. Somebody put David Foster Wallace's words to this video. And it talks about that exact thing is. Starts with that story. He starts with the the fish story. And um, it's one of the more impactful videos for me because it's just, it's a quick way to dig into empathy. And you talk about empathy a lot in your book. Um, One of the things, so when I read your book, there was something in there about, um, the the person who committed the crimes in Sandy Hook that you viewed the interview in the police station, which I never did. And um, there's something that was very- in the Sandy Hook. Uh, oh, was that Parkland? Yeah. Is it Parkland? It's one of them. It's one of them. Yes. I don't even remember which interview I was watching, but yes. Will you, will you um, share that story? Well- you can go online. I think it is the Parkland shooter, and you can watch the interrogation, the police interrogation of the shooter, and it goes on for obviously a long time. But what's striking about it is he just comes across as a young man. He comes across like any other young man in circumstances of his own making, um, but there's nothing monstrous about him. There's nothing freakish about him. He, he, he's he's obviously somewhat distraught, but he's also very human. And 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 
it makes it his humanity makes it almost more troubling, you know, because you recognize any number of kids in this guy, you know, his brother comes in at one point and they have a really kind of awkward and heartfelt conversation and, and, and the brother apologizes to him for failing him. Um, they hug at one point and you just see like, He's just destroyed a world and he's destroyed his own life. And that reality is slowly sinking in with him. And even as I'm describing it now, like, you know what he's just done. You know what, what has just happened and yet it's impossible or I found it impossible not to feel a certain measure of sympathy for this kid. Not because of what he's done. I mean, there, there's no... I have no sympathetic reflex for that, but because, because as a human to a human, you see his own humanity and you can't help but wonder like, what has gone so horribly wrong with this kid that, that he did this? What happened? Why is he in this position? Why, well, how did it ever get this far? And you see other boys, you know, in this boy. Mm. Yeah. The term I use is wounded. So trying to think of, some of the people that I find the most despicable, <clears throat> former President Trump comes to mind. I even see him as a wounded little boy. Mm -hmm. And um, we <clears throat> in society, like you talk a lot about cultural conditioning of masculinity. If I were going to encapsulate your book into two words, it would be like mature masculinity or healthy masculinity. And you model that so beautifully. And I'm just such a big admirer that you are willing to speak up I think so many other men, including myself, agrees with your message, but you have the wherewithal, the decision to speak out about it. And Kathy, maybe you could talk to this. I think there's so many good men that are quiet. Well, I mean, this is what I struggle with. And, and um, you know, Todd's the person who I'm with all the time. And so, and because he runs a men's group, I'm, I'm kind of on his case all the time. And I know it's a much broader issue, but, you know, this is the conversation we're having. And I write about it a lot in that it's, I get overwhelmingly frustrated and frustrated and frustrated because like this discussion we're having, this is a men's issue. Or when it comes to Roe v. Wade and, and everything, there's this feeling as if men aren't half of what's making a child and that there's no legal implications for men it's just all going to be on women. And we're like, yeah, that's, that's, there's like such a, there's such a disconnection. And I want to say, because we have to, and you, you talk about this in your book, this, and then you, you uh, put race into this issue. Like you tell a, a beautiful story or share a story about a woman who, you know, she says, when you look in the mirror, who do you see? And she's like a woman. And she's like, well, when I look in the mirror, I see, you know, a black woman, which is a completely different situation where there, there's so many levels and then LGBTQ community just go on and on. But there's this, lack of compassion that I struggle with. And I teach like my whole thing is compassion, but there's such a, a lack of understanding of how we interact with each other and how this affects this. And, and, you know, I, I the question is very similar to what I was asking before. So I'm making a rip on it again, but where is it fear of social disconnection that men are experiencing where they're like, I don't want to be that guy. Or is it really, like you said, we just swim in it. And this is the world we live in. It's just a violent world. Um, I think it's a combination of things. And I think I'm answering the question, why don't more men speak up about this? Um, the first and I think simplest answer is we don't have the vocabulary. Mm. We don't have the words. We don't know how to talk about it. We don't know how to talk about the questions and disconnect that we may feel um, regarding what we perceive as acceptable masculinity versus the way we may feel ourselves uh, and how we may feel as men. I think so many men feel or, or fear that we don't measure up as men. Um, and I think that's because we have models of masculinity that are unrealistic and unhealthy in a lot of times. Are, are, are kind of counterproductive to existing um, in a open environment. And, and 
there's also just, there's, there's just not a lot of conversation around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason there's not a lot of conversation about it, because even talking about it, it threatens to kind of demean your masculinity. You know, it's different with women. Women have spent the last 60, 70 years having conversations about what it means to be a woman. And men just haven't had those conversations. Um, my hope is that as a result of all the great work that women have done over the last half century or so, that the space is now opening up for men to start having those same conversations. And hopefully in doing so, like we'll start to have that vocabulary. We'll start to be able to even understand the questions that we may not quite be able to formulate ourselves. Like I knew from a pretty early age, growing up in New Jersey in the mid eighties, like at a time where like New Jersey culture was sort of like ground zero for just like, like gross American culture. It was like hair metal and Bon Jovi and, you know, just like, it was just like sports obsessed. And it was like all this like sort of stuff. And I knew I didn't fit in. I knew like I wasn't ever going to be that guy. So I, I was sort of aware of it from a young age that I needed to figure out a different model of masculinity for myself just to feel like I could get through the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's probably pretty common with guys, even when they don't show it or admit it. I think a lot of guys feel un- maybe a little bit uncomfortable in their own skin because they think they have to be a certain kind of man when they know themselves to be I don't want to say not that, but more than that. Mm. I like that. Um, I assume you're familiar with Jackson Katz. No. Oh, wow. Okay. So he kind of does what, what you do, which is speak about healthy masculinity. He's been in this um, world for a long time of just speaking to equality and all that. And he did a, um, a documentary called uh, The Bystander Moment, which we actually screened actually screened it on my last weekend retreat with a bunch of men. And one of the things, and this kind of goes to what Kathy's question was, is how come good men don't speak up? I think your answer about vocabulary is an interesting one. I think a lot of it is fear of being, and this is what he says in the documentary, the biggest collateral we have as guys is to fit in with other guys. And I see you, Michael, as a unicorn. And I mean that with just heart and love, like you are doing what most men are not willing to do, which is put themselves out there, speak to equality, speak to feminism and all that. And I think the reason there's not enough guys out there doing what it is that I think not most, but a lot of men believe in is they don't want to be looked at as a feminist. And I've declared myself a feminist for a long time. I assume you do too, if you're okay with that definition. Um, and I get very frustrated sometimes with the lack of voice in myself, by the way, as well as other men around me. I just wonder if you want to speak to that. Well, first of all, thanks for the compliment, but I mean, you know, like in my world of like, you know, actors and artists, like I'm not doing anything that a lot of other guys don't do. I mean, I think it's probably harder if you live in a kind of different environment than I live in. Now that that being said, like I put myself in this environment, you know, it's, it's not a coincidence that I, that I live in this world. Um, and yes, of course I consider myself a feminist and, um, I do think a lot of men have a lot of fear about speaking up and speaking out for exactly the reason that you're talking about. They don't want to be viewed as, well, as I said before, even talking about these issues, if if you're sort of uh, um, straightjacketed into what I call, you know, traditional masculinity, even talking about these issues will demean that, will will make you appear less masculine. If you speak out on whatever it is, feminism, Roe v. Wade, on LGBT issues, on, on empathy, if you 
if you deviate from a certain narrow path, you risk being ridiculed, you risk being, you know, um, feminized by your peer group. And I think it's that fear that keeps a lot of guys from saying what they really think. Yeah. And, you know, going back to what you were talking about with language, um, and you talk about this in your book, um, I use the word patriarchy a lot to explain the structure, like a lot of people do, you know, that's, but there's always not, uh, not always strong word. There is often a lot of pushback with that word. Um, I think a lot of people correlate that with, uh, that's why I avoid it. Yeah. And toxic masculinity, right? Like you say in your book, I, and, and you have historical reasons for not liking that too, because there was some things you grew up with where you felt like, men were, you know, they were called bad or they were a pain in the ass or, you know, see, I just swore, um, you know, that that was a problem. Um, and so can you talk about those words like to toxic masculinity and patriarchy and how they might be harmful, but. Before you answer that, Michael, yeah. I just want to say, I agree with 99.9% .9 of what you wrote in this book. The one exception I took was because I've been using the term toxic masculinity a long time and I'm not that interested. So and, and it sounds like you're not a fan of that word and I'm putting words in your mouth because it encapsulates who men are and the, to attach the term toxic to masculinity might insinuate that men are bad. And, and I hope you talk about your upbringing with your mom and, and her wife, uh, because that, that might be an interesting segue, but I'm more interested in men's response to the term toxic masculinity than that term itself, because mm. men get super so defensive. Yeah on it. And there's something in the response that I judge they can learn from. Um, so anyways, I'll just pause there and, and hear what you think. So there are certain words that I tend to avoid because they do create those knee jerk responses and they do create defensiveness. And in trying to begin conversations, I, t I, I want to avoid those terms because of that, because it, it just puts ha people's hackles up. Toxic masculinity is certainly one of them. Part of the reason I don't like it is because, um, not because of the descriptor itself, because I actually think the term toxic masculinity can mean something really specific. But unfortunately, because we don't have a model of healthy masculinity, I feel like that word toxic affixes itself so easily to masculinity that it, that a lot of guys tend to think it's describing all masculine behavior or what they perceive as masculine behavior. And so I think that's why you get that defensive reaction. So I just tend to avoid it because it means different things to different people. And unfortunately, I think when some men hear it, they think you're just talking about men in general. Um, I avoid the word patriarchy because it's sort of not because I disagree with it. I think it perfectly describes the culture, but because it, it kind of has a, um, a, a scoldy academic, mm -hmm. um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, connotation that I, that I think it's better to avoid. Um, I even avoid the word feminism because, because that, because that word has become so corrupted by its opponents, you know, this is part of the re this is part of the problem with talking about this issue is um when i say we don't have the vocabulary like we literally don't have the vocabulary like the words don't exist and the words that do exist get so kind of corrupted and um vilified that they they the, the words themselves become battlegrounds um it's like what they're doing with the phrase critical race theory. You know, it's the same thing. It's like you just you just you just seize onto these words or phrases and you turn them into cudgels and they come to mean something that they don't mean. In terms of my own background, yeah, I did grow up in a lesbian household um, with a, 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 a mom and her partner who I I always kind of laugh. Um, when I think about them in those early years, because they were in so many ways, the caricature of, of lesbians, like from that era. Um, 
And it sucks to say, but it's true. I mean, they just were like, they had a lot of anger towards men. Um, and I think a lot of it was justified mm-hmm. and some of it wasn't, but there were three boys in that household and they were definitely like products of their time. And so like the phrase male chauvinist pig would get thrown around my house all the time and it couldn't help, but in fact, the young minds that, or at least this young mind that, uh, was listening to that sort of language and those sort of attitudes on a daily basis. So I became very kind of wary, I think, of men and of my own incipient manhood. Like I was, I was concerned about like what I would be like as a guy, like what will I be one of those male chauvinist pigs or, or, or not. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess I was introduced to the idea of toxic masculinity at a young age um, and had to like navigate, had to, had to sort of navigate through those waters to try to understand, okay, so what does it mean to not be a male chauvinist pig? What does it mean to just be an okay, just dude? Mm. Um, and by the way, like I, I definitely fail at that all the time. You know, I'm not, I don't hold myself up to be any better than anybody else. In fact, a lot of times I'm worse than other dudes. Like I'm, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm terrible a lot of the time, but you know, trying to get better. That's why the book is called the better man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and you know, and, and I love this. I mean, this is, these are like my favorite conversations to have and the kind of conversations I, I do my best to have with my daughters because you know, we've talked to them in such a way where we like have them, you know, question everything and and look at this and what is this and, and what we can do as human beings sometimes is go into the binary and be like, yeah, it's all bad, you know, or no, it's great. And it's good. And everybody, and I am constantly, it's like, they have called me out on, wow, mom, yesterday we were talking about this and you were here. And now, as soon as we say this, you're like, but remember those people who were raised in such a way where that's all they know or or what they believe is inherently from a good place. And sometimes it just doesn't show up well. So, you know, what you were saying about, you know, that, you know, your your mom and I, I assume you've heard her, it's a, a, you know, her, your mom's partner, um, they are trying to share something with you, but sometimes it gets just too extreme where it's just the one side and everything is in the gray. And that's a very hard um thing to teach until you kind of, you have to live that you have to like understand gray because we just want to, you know, just like we're doing politically right now, we just want to adhere to a side and be like, I'm good. I don't need to look any further. And investigation is like the only way we're going to meet each other again. Yeah. I think people generally speaking do live in the grays. Generally people are living in kind of an in-between place and and just like you, like swinging from side to side, sometimes they feel one way about something. Sometimes they feel another, depending on circumstances. Um, we're all hypocrites. We all make mistakes. We all screw up. Um, we all don't live up to our own ideals, but hopefully with self-interrogation and um, in open, open ears and open eyes and an open heart, like we, we can own up to where we screw up. And we try to take a step in the right direction from time to time. You know, it's, it's all, I mean, that's just the, that's just the business of being a human. I think Um, when you calcify and when you just stake out a position and you say, I'm immovable from this place, you know, you lose something, you lose, I think a little part of your humanity. Mm -hmm. One of the um, stories in the book that I resonated with And I guess I'll tell my story first, and then maybe you can tell your story. My stepdad died, I guess JC's 19. My stepdad died 19 years ago. And I drove to my mom's house after he passed away that night, middle of the night. And I, I felt numb. I felt completely numb, no sadness, no body sensations. And I put on this sad song, hoping to cultivate some of my things that I felt I should be feeling. And it didn't work. And since then, I'm, I'm getting better at tapping into body sensations and feelings and emotions through a lot of uh, curiosity and, and, and work on my own. And then you told the story in the book when your dad died and how you handled the funeral and later on that night. Uh, well, I think you're talking. So my, I lost my dad when I was quite young. 
I lost my mom more recently. Mm-hmm. And when my mom died, uh, when my dad died, I did shut off. Like I definitely, as a 12 year old, I definitely just shut down. I definitely was like, I'm not dealing with this. And I felt like I didn't really deal with it for about 28 years. You know, I just was like, I'm not, I'm not capable of really looking at this and, and dealing with it. And when my mom died a few years ago, Mm. I was, I, you know, I was like, I made this mistake with my dad. You know, I'm going to be receptive to like what I'm. Who's that? Just the worst animals in the world. (laughs) Oh, more than one. Yeah. I got two of them. There's nothing there. They're barking at nothing. Right. They think there's something there, but no. no. Um, when my mom died, I was like, I'm going to be receptive to whatever I'm experiencing. I'm going to be open. I'm going to be available. I'm, and I felt nothing. You know, I was less like just totally shut down and made it through, you know, the, the, the funeral and, and her memorial and just was like waiting to collapse, you know, waiting to just like experience whatever I thought I was supposed to experience. And I didn't. And then that night at the hotel, um, I just started drinking and I don't drink, you know? Um, and then Finally, you know, just sort of found myself sobbing on the floor, you know, kind of collapsed and, and feeling regretful that like I wasn't able to have that in a, in, in, in the moment, you know, that it, and, and regretful that like it took vodka, you know, to sort of unlock that. Um, and wishing that I just could be more open and available Mm. to whatever I was experiencing, but then also feeling like, all right, you don't need to like judge what you did go through. Mm. Like you went through what you went through and that is also okay. Exactly. Exactly. I, it, Todd beats himself up all the time about the way the emotion comes through that it doesn't come through at the right moment, that he doesn't say the right thing that could be helped, you know, and there's a lot of, I, I really um, believe for all of us. And I, I, even though we could make this gender specific, I think all of us have different ways that we respond to things because of our own history, our own past, what scares us, our defense mechanisms. Like we can't, there is no clean way. You know, I love that what you said before that we're all kind of, you know, living in the gray with this, that this is just part of being human. Like you're not going to get, there's no, and, and is there a right way to grieve? Like Todd lost his mom. And first of all, I'm sorry that you just mm-hmm. lost your mom. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go over that. Um, that is, um, that's it. parent loss is a really interesting, I'm being a therapist when I say interesting, but you know, it's an interesting thing. I lost my dad. My mom is now dealing with dementia. So I'm taking care of her. Todd lost his mom a few years back too. So it's a very, it, it's not a uh, simple grief process. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. It, it has lots of ebbs and flows and we have that first big cry and we're like, okay, good. But then it shows up in all sorts of strange ways. Have you, have you found that too with grief or are you like, is it hard to really know what's grief and then what's other things that you're concerned about? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's strange because I do even what now, almost 40 years later, like I feel more acute grief for my dad than I do for my mom. And I think it's because like I had a long, um, rich history with my mom mm-hmm. and maybe because of that, it was easier to let her go. Whereas I lost my dad at such a young age that um, I still feel that pain in a way that I don't with my mom. Um, Grief is strange. It's strange the way it bubbles up. It's strange sometimes that it doesn't bubble up. It's strange how you live with it um, or don't live with it. It's yeah, I mean it, it's it's a it's a constant companion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and that's not even a bad thing, you know. It's like, in some ways, 
you know, I feel like I, I, I carry my dad around with me in a way because, you know, like I'm older than he ever was. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of me feels like I'm kind of taking him with me into, into sort of uncharted territory for him. And I like that, you know, I, I like, I like that I have that form of grief. Um, whereas with my mom, like I feel just much more at peace with, um, she lived a lot longer. We were closer. Um, there was never, and you know, like we don't, we didn't, our relationship didn't end with any particular lingering questions or unresolved issues. Like it was all really healthy and good, you know? And in that way, I feel like I'm, I'm able to let her go. Um, and sometimes I don't like that. You know, sometimes I wish like the grief was more acute because I feel like I'm doing a disservice to her by not being in more active mourning for her. Mm -hmm. You, um, you are so vulnerable and honest. Like you tell a lot of stories that do not put you in the best light. And what's funny is that that's what I connect with the most. When you're telling these stories, you tell a story about, um, you know, you hitting your sister in a way that was, you know, I just felt love for you and your sister in that moment. Um, I'm picturing there's moms listening right now, moms and dads who have sons that are in these teenage years. Your son is older now. What is he, 19 or 20 or 21? 21. He just turned 21. Um, my answer to every parenting question is pretty simple. Just model the behavior that you want to be, which I know is kind of a shortcut, but it's a truth. So I guess it's a two-pronged question. How good are you, were you at modeling the way you want your son to be? And then any like I don't know. I hate giving advice, but any words of wisdom for any parents out there that have a 14 year old teenage son who's starting to shut down from his body and his emotions and his feelings. And he's, he's living in the man box, which tells him that his only value is based on athletics or money or sex or whatever. So, um, I think I did an okay job of modeling. Um, give myself maybe a six and a half out of 10. <laughs> not terrible, not amazing. Um, there's things I wish I would have done better. If I were to become a parent again, I think I probably would be better because I've thought about these things in a way that I, that I hadn't before. Um, on the other hand, you know, like things I think I didn't do very well, um, I don't think I showed sort of the full gamut of my own humanity to my kids the way so many fathers don't. Um, you know, I think if my kids saw me upset, what they saw was withdrawal, mm -hmm. um, you know, flashes of anger, but they didn't see any particular, you know, they didn't see grief. They didn't see tears. They didn't see, um, you know, uh, uh, they didn't, I don't think they saw a lot of vulnerability in me. Things that I think I did well. I mean, I think I did a really good job communicating that I loved them. I think I did a good job of listening. I think I did a good job of, um, um, respecting them as people, you know, and not like talking down to them as kids. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm sure they would be happy to tell you all the things I did badly. Mm -hmm. Uh, as far as advice goes, I mean, it's hard, you know, I, I I'm, I'm, I'm loath to give too much advice without, you know, dealing with a specific situation. And also I'm not qualified to give advice as anything other than a dad, but it, it, the, the further I got into parenting in some ways, I felt like the job became easier is the wrong word, but simplified. Whereas I started to feel more and more like my job as a parent is pretty simple. It's to, to, to let my kids know that they're loved and not much more than that. Mm -hmm. And part of that 
like uh, that's uh, I don't mean to oversimplify, but I think it is sort of simple. Part of knowing that they're loved means you have a you have a place where you're safe, you have food to eat, you have, you know, you're 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 going to be um physically taken care of, but I'm not I can't I can't solve all your problems. I can't um I can't, I can't always fix the things that you would like to be fixed, but I can be there to hear you and I can be there to empathize with you and I can be there to, you know, offer whatever meager I advice you want. That's how I give you my love. Um, yeah, but, but. But when you're when you first become a parent, your I was overwhelmed with what am I supposed to do? What are my responsibilities? Like what what is it day to day? And I think the answer is day to day you love them. This and is not much more than that. This is from your book because part of the reason I like your book is because it's funny. Like the sarcastic one in you comes out in this like mm -hmm. really funny way. If you ever want to feel useless, I recommend attending the birth of your child. Mm -hmm. The moment I'd felt crossed irrevocably into manhood, it was when I drove my family home from the hospital for the first time. Just let me get them home. Um, I just thought that was hilarious because when I was in the, the room when Kathy was delivering her children, I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I feel so damn useless. Well, I'm not sure we shouldn't go back to the 60s <laughs> where men just waited with cigars in the waiting room. You know, like... Yeah, you're there to support your partner, but most of the time what your partner doing is doing is just yelling at you that you're that you're horrible and useless. Well, and you're like, yeah, I am. Yeah, I know. I agree. Michael, on the way home with our first child, our daughter JC, who's now 19. So, you know, first, you know, first time having a child, pretty significant labor, had to have a lot of stitches of that whole thing. We finally get to go home. And Todd is taking me some direction where I'm like, where are you going? And he's like, I got to go pick up. He, he owns some buildings. He's like, I got to go pick up the change out of the laundry machines. And I'm like, what? Like I'm in, we're like on bumpy roads in Chicago. I'm like, what are we doing? And talk about like, a like, like he wasn't quite with me in my experience. If I were going to write a book that I would, I would take Michael's uh, path and just say all these embarrassing things. I'm horrified of that story. And I can list off 10 more of how inadequate I was as a dad, because I'm like, this is why Michael's a better person than me. This is like my little ego, like trying to compare myself. You were nervous to make sure your child got home safely and you didn't crash the car. And I was worried about picking up the rent money at the apartment buildings. Oh, sure. But, it, but if there'd been money at stake, I would have gone <laughs> to get the money. Oh, God. I know. I know. Um, if there'd been like a scratch off lotto ticket to cash, I would have been like, honey, we got to start with the 7-Eleven for a second. I got this $5 lottery ticket. I got to. Well, you know, on that note of like these beginning stages, because again, I'm talking to you, your kids are older. And first of all, I, I want to say, I completely agree with you about the simplification of we just love them. And that looks a million different ways. And we could bring in any word and say, this is how this look, you know, what love means here. This is what love means here. And depending on the family and the culture, it's going to look different. But I do agree that sometimes we make it, you know, with words and everything, we make it too difficult when really it's just show up for this person in front of you and they are not you. They are a different person and you're loving them for being that person. And how can you help them become more of that person? So I'll ask it this way, Michael. So, you, you know, we're talking about supporting our children and what that means as far as we just love them. You know, this simple understanding that also has a lot of layers of understanding. And I guess my question is, did you notice how your kids were similar to you, but also very different than you? And was that exciting? And like, were you curious about it? Or were you sometimes challenged with, you know, they're, they're different than me or their ideas are different than me, or I'm not sure, you know, where did they where did they come up with this idea? Like, you know, where we start to recognize our kids are not extensions of us. They are their own people. Mm. Did you have any of those experiences? Yeah, of course. I think every parent does. Um, for me, it, it probably manifested itself, not so much in like belief systems um, as it did. Like I would see parts of my own personality in them that I liked and parts of my own personality in them that I didn't like. Or... Things that, um, 
aspects of them that I might, that, that might, uh, attract me or repel me, you know, in certain ways. And you, and you realize, my God, yeah, this is, this is, this is a person <laughs> that is, that is totally separate from me or my wife. Like they're their own person. And I would catch myself like sometimes like wanting to like change that part of them that was like bothering me and recognizing almost in the same instant, like, well, hold on a second. Like, what is it about that, that like makes you uncomfortable? And can you like move towards that mm -hmm. and embrace that? as opposed to try to quash it or change it or mold it or whatever it is. Because one of the things that I learned as a parent is like, you can't change them. Like they are who they are. And it's a fool's errand to try. And why would you want to try? Like just the joy of parenting, I think, or one of the big joys is, is like learning to sort of understand and embrace this, this whole person, everything that they are. Now, sometimes, particularly when they're teenagers, they're just awful, <laughs> you know, that's okay. Um, like in those moments where they were awful or sometimes still are, I remember like one of the things that sort of made me feel better about it was, was to look at it developmentally and be like, Oh wait, you're supposed to be awful right now. Like you're doing, you're, 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 you're marching right along the route. You're supposed to be marching. Like you're going right according to plan. So that kind of made me feel better. You know, when, you know, they say something just terrible or they behave miserably and you're just like oh, exhausted. You're just like, all right, like you're developing exactly the way you're supposed to. And then understanding concurrently that so are you as a parent, like, so are you, like, this is all going according to plan mm -hmm. and be grateful for it. Yeah. And it's like that going back to emotions and feeling what we're feeling and realizing that discomfort and uncertainty and lack of control are part of being human and part of the parenting process. This is not something we're trying to change or stifle. Like this is feeling like it's messy means that you're parenting. That's yeah. It's the way it is. Yeah. And, and that's good. Like, you know, like my daughter in particular, you know, had a challenging few years as a teenager and my wife would get so upset because, you know, I think she took it really personally. And I understand that one of, one of the things I think I was able to do well was disassociate a little bit from it and be like, it's not, it's not personal. Like it's not, yeah, she's saying horrible personal things about me or about her, but it's not personal. It's about what's going on with her. And she trusts us enough yeah. that she can be horrible to us. Like there's a certain amount of gratitude you can have about that. Like, the fact that she can just freely express her contempt and venom for us is a good thing. You know, it's a gift because I know she's not doing that with her teachers. I know she's not doing that with her friends. The fact that she can, she feels like she's in a safe enough space to do that here, I think is a good thing. Um, Michael, you touch on so many different topics that I think are important. One of the topics you touch on is consent. And, mm -hmm. you know, we talk a lot about sex education and how it's not one conversation. It's an ongoing discussion, blah, blah, blah. And I'm quoting you here as you gain, and this is, you are writing this book to your son. Mm -hmm. And you say, as you gain confidence in the dating world, you'll eventually get a sense of the right time to lean in for that kiss. As you do though, ask her if it's okay. Can I kiss you? Does not, that doesn't have to be a buzzkill. If anything will enhance that moment when she says yes. And if she says no, congratulations, you've just as avoided a sexual assault, mm -hmm. which is kind of funny and true all at the same time. And I just want to say thank you for bringing up the idea of consent because, you know, we, 
we're all you were born in 1971 kathy's born in 1971 i was born in 1972 we i didn't even hear, hear of the word consent until i was an adult mm-hmm. and um it's such a hugely important piece for boys and girls but specifically boys because we are conditioned to take we think that we take whatever we think is ours and i just want to say thank you so much for bringing that very important topic up well i think it's i know it's an important topic and you're right i wasn't raised with that idea and in fact it caused it causes a lot of problems um i I don't just mean like sexual assault problems, you know, to take it that far, but men and boys, at least when I was growing up, like we were conditioned to be the aggressor. We were sort of told that was our responsibility. And we were also told, we were also given the message that no doesn't always mean no that you can push through no, and that we were kind of expected to do that. Um, there were, it was, it was, and I think continues to be really confusing for guys and girls. We, we were, we received a lot of conflicting messages about what we were supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. And the idea of affirmative consent, I think, is really helpful because it just sort of puts everything on the table. You know, you go, can I kiss you? And that just makes everything much clearer, I think. Um, There's not going to be those kinds of misunderstandings, or at least not to the same extent. And you end up, I think, in a, in, in a, in a much, a much safer environment for both parties. Um, And I don't think it has to be a buzzkill. I don't, I, I mean, look, I haven't been in the dating world in a long time. So what do I know? But I think it can be a, a healthy, positive, and hopefully, you know, mm-hmm. fun moment for both of you. Um, and I do think, I get the sense that most sex education classes in high school and middle school are talking about consent um, and talking about how important it is and, you know, Hopefully it, 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 it just becomes part of the culture. I think it, I think it, it, it kind of already is. I don't know how well it's practiced. I don't know. Um, but I think it's, I think it's making inroads. Yeah. It kind of depends on the state and how sex education is taught and mm. how, you know, and again, I think beyond sex education per se, it's, it's more mainstream. You know, we discuss it, mm-hmm. it's the word, and then everybody struggles to come up with an absolute definition, but just the conversation alone, it, you know, creates some uh, awareness of what's happening. Um, yeah. So Todd, I wanted to ask Michael. So Michael, I follow you on Twitter, um, of course. And I, I don't know where I want to go with Twitter. I just kind of want to know how, what is your, I'm on there too. So it's not about why are you there? Cause I'm there, but what do you think about Twitter? Like, what are you, like you said, sometimes it can feel like screaming into the void or maybe finding um, like-minded or people who are willing to have a conversation. It's not that we have to agree on everything. I'm not, you know, big into that, but do you find it to be, is it more for work and career or do you, have you found something positive there? Well, uh, I think it's primarily for work and career. It's prim- I mean, for, for me, it's primarily for just making jokes, yeah. being dumb and uh, talking to people and being, you know, a goofball. Mm-hmm. There are times where, you know, I have been really political and strident on there. Those tend not to be very productive times, uh, which I know when I get into it. Like right now, like after the Buffalo thing, like I'm on there yelling about guns again. I know it's not going to do anything, but I feel compelled to do it. It's just a release valve for me. Um, I'm not going to change any minds. I'm not going to move the needle. And yet, if I don't do it, I just feel like I'm not saying something that I feel like I need to say. Um, I think Twitter can be healthy. I think it can obviously be unhealthy. Um and it's been both for me. Um, for me, you know, the the unhealthiest aspect of it for me is that I use it as a procrastination tool. You know, it's just a 
it's just an easy go-to tool that keeps me from doing anything else. Um, yeah, thanks for that. Well, I, I'm just appreciating, and I, I'm not on Twitter, uh, but I appreciate you using your voice to say some of the things that I feel, and I just choose not to engage in that platform. Well, and I will say when you say, you know, sometimes we just put it out there. And I think one thing it can do, at least I've found this, the more that even in just my smaller community that I speak out about things is that people then feel a little more of a platform to do the same. So mm -hmm. the people who follow you are like, if he's saying that, then I feel kind of safe saying something similar, or I can retweet what he said, mm -hmm. um, because I can't say it in the same way he can. So it, like you said, it's hard to know what moves the needle, but sometimes you do empower people without knowing it. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that I do think it can be useful for is kind of that is, is sometimes when I'm engaging in arguments with people, public arguments with people, I'm not doing it because I'm trying to change their minds. I'm doing it because I'm hopeful that somebody watching the argument may find something useful that they can take back to their own lives to have a conversation with somebody that maybe is amenable to um, expanding their point of view. And I like to think that I'm also amenable to it. Like when I'm having a good faith conversation with somebody, I like to think that I'm, that my, my views on something can evolve and change and, and become more nuanced. I, I hope that I'm not just using it as a way to like, you know, pwn, as the kids say. <laughs> my, uh, my, my political rivals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about your last chapter, at least just give you a comment. And after that, I just wonder if you'd be willing, cause Kathy and I don't get a chance to talk to Hollywood actors very often and transition to something a little bit less serious. Mm -hmm. You okay with that? Sure. Okay. First thing is I read, I, I actually listened to your chap, the last chapter yesterday afternoon and it was kind of like encapsulating the entire book. Um, but essentially what you're saying to your son through these words is it's all about love. And you're like, I know it sounds hokey, but really that's what it's all about. And as I was hearing you talk, cause you narrate it in the last like few paragraphs, I like felt goosebumps through my entire body. And I couldn't even explain to you why it almost like penetrated my body more than my thinking brain. And I just, when I find myself in proximity to words that inspire me, it, it, it just felt really warm and fuzzy and good in my body to hear a man talk about what I consider the most important thing, which is healthy masculinity and love and softness and tenderness. Like there's wonderful parts about being a man, about my aggressive type, my warrior type, but to hear somebody write a book about love and empathy, it just it just hit me hard, much harder than most books I've read. So I just want to say thank you for that. Well, thank you, thank you for letting me know that. That means a lot to me. I'm I'm so glad. Yeah, I mean, I I surprised myself, I guess, at my own conclusions in this book that it did come down to that. It did come down to the active power of love. And I, I'm, I'm careful to, to sort of talk about it in those terms because when so many men, I think, hear that word love, they think of it as only the warm and gushy stuff. And it is that too. But there's also... Um, a fierceness to it. There's an act, there's an, there's an action involved in it. Love is not something that you only receive. It is something you actively do. It is something you actively pursue. It is something you can fight for. When we talk about masculinity, I try to, I try to couch it sometimes in terms that maybe men are more receptive to hearing. Mm -hmm. So I talk about like the power uh, that is required to love something fiercely. I talk about the strength that you have to have to be vulnerable, the confidence that you have to have to expose yourself, your, your whole self to somebody. And um, the, the fortitude that is required 
to work through problems in relationships. Like all of these, all of these attributes that are traditionally masculine can be applied really readily to the larger work of being a modern man mm-hmm. and should be applied to it. Because mm-hmm. as I say at the very beginning, like I'm not looking to, I think there's a lot of conversation around this topic and fear around this topic, around the idea of uh, masculinity that, that people who are invested in this are trying to change men, trying to reinvent men. And I'm not interested in that. But what I am interested in is expanding what we think of when we think of manhood and encapsulating our whole selves, the selves that we don't dare show to other people, as we talked about in the beginning of this conversation, because we feel like it will feminize us. When all, when really what we're doing is we're just being human. We're just being full spectrum human beings. Hmm. And that's all I'm trying to do is encourage guys to be those full spectrum human beings. Yeah. I love the word expansive, you know, like that's exactly yeah. what it is. It's, it's nothing new. You're not saying now we need to become this different thing. We just need to, we're like an accordion. Everybody. We just have to, we just have to own up to and allow ourselves to be the thing that we already know ourselves to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so moving into the more Hollywood uh, version of this uh, conversation, yeah. and this will be the end of our conversation, but I just want to tell you that when I moved to Chicago with my girlfriends, I went to school in Iowa and then moved to Chicago and the state had just started. So that was the show we watched. Um, from, I think it was on at least two years, um, mm-hmm. because we had a lot of our private jokes were about that. So obviously our, um, you know, we followed your career and it seems like you, uh, tend to work with a lot of similar people. Like when I look up a lot of your, um, you know, movies, a lot of, there's a lot of overlap with similar people. So are you, do you kind of find it, and, but you're also on the good fight, which is like one of my favorite shows of all time. Like you've done some really interesting things. So do you find that you like kind of working with the, with the same group? Because that's like, you kind of know that rhythm or what do yeah. you, yeah. Like, just tell me about your, your process as far as being in well, it's that. I mean, I think it's, it's that simple. It's like it, it, a lot of the people that I work with were in that original sketch comedy group, the state, and we've known each other since we were 17, 18 years old. We're all good friends. We grew up together. So it's like, anytime we get an opportunity to work together, we want to, um, we, love each other. We have a lot of fun. We have a shorthand and it's easy. And, you know, I think anytime somebody gets, wants, gets the opportunity to work with their friends, of course you want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do too. <laughs> yeah, love it. exactly. That's great. Um, did you want to No, ask? go ahead, sweetie. Oh, okay. So, well, the, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even know where to go with, actually, this is like going a little bit backwards, but it's kind of similar in, you know, this conversation. It's, it's the, you, cause you were talking about video games in the book and you talked about skate or die. And I kind of like the idea of finishing on this, you know, conversation of skate or die, like where we either right now, when things are changing in the world and we're being like, things are being thrown at us, that something is not right. You know, we are, we are either hiding behind our TVs and just yelling at them, like you said, or we are willing to skate or die. So can you explain to everybody what that means in the book? Well, yeah, there's, there was this video game, uh, I think called skateboard. I don't remember what it's called, but you have to like do skate tricks in the skate park. And if you don't do enough skate tricks, a voice comes on and says, skate or die. And then like a, like a swarm of bees or something attacks you. And I think that's kind of where we are as guys. Like we have to skate, you know, we have to like figure out new tricks. We have to figure out like where to go, how to be, how to do the new kickflip. Because if we don't, like we, 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 we really run the risk of, um, of dying metaphorically and literally. I mean, what we're seeing in this country is lower graduation rates for men, um, higher incidence of suicide among men, loneliness, depression. Um, and a lot of it has to do with changes in the culture that are rapidly accelerating. Um, they're global in nature, they're technological in nature, they're sociological in nature. And it's one thing to say, Hey men, you should be better because it's better for you and you'll be happier. Okay. That's one thing. But from a purely pragmatic point of view, 
men, you need to be better because the job opportunities of tomorrow are going to reward skill sets that are traditionally more feminine, um, cooperation, creativity, expansive thinking. You need to be able to just compete in the culture. Women are um, sort of leapfrogging ahead of us. And it's not a competition. If anything, we should be looking at women and be inspired by them and say, it's great that they're doing so well. How can we now play catch up to women when women spend so many decades playing catch up to men? So yeah, we have to skate or die. Hmm. I know. I love that. I think I will use that from now on. I really will. <laughs> so I just want to say thank you for your work as far as, you know, your acting and your comedy. Um, it's been wonderful to watch you, you know, again, we're the same age. So kind of grown up in, you know, the same world, you know, I've really appreciated it. I'm a big Schumer fan too. So everything oh, yeah. done on her show has been amazing. And um, just thank you for this book, because now I have a book that I can share mm. with uh, dads. That's it's harder to find books for dads. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you that because Todd and I, people ask us all the time for referrals. And like Todd said, this is really magical. So mm. thank you. Oh, thanks, Kathy. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I feel like I should close the show. I yeah. just want to say thank one you. last thing about his. Uh, so he's got 74 credits on IMDb. Yeah. Kathy and I constantly quote Wonderlust to each other. Mm hmm. And nobody ever that quotes that show. I feel like there's probably a lot of good movies out there that don't get the proper due. And I just wonder, are we different? Like, I, I just wonder, and I don't even remember exactly how big of a role you played in that movie. Oh, tiny, tiny. Um, and I, you're not one of those actors that don't watch their own movies, right? I always I rarely watch things that I'm in. Really? Oh my gosh, I can dive into that too. I've always been fascinated with that. But anyways, um, all right. I think we should let, close. Let him go. He's He's got other things to do. So Michael, so um, so glad that you played, spent some time with us today. The name of the book is called a better man, a mostly serious letter to my son. He's also written some award-winning children's books. I'm bored. I'm sad. And I'm worried. Um, where if people want to chase you down, what's the best way for them to follow you, Michael? Uh, just go on Twitter and watch all my annoying diatribes and dumb jokes on twitter at michael ian black it's the best i highly recommend all right michael thank you so much for being such an inspiration oh thanks so much i really appreciate the time thanks for having me on all right Bye. take care thanks for listening everyone if you have appreciated or enjoyed a decade of zen parenting radio podcasts please tell a friend or leave a five-star review we are always grateful for your support if you want more zen parenting consider joining team zen pre-ordering Kathy's Zen Parenting book or subscribing to Zen Parenting Moment. You can find these opportunities and more at zenparentingradio.com. If you want to connect through social networking, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Keep trucking and we will talk to you again next week.